We'll turn tonight to 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 17. I want you to notice that this morning when I mentioned our evening service, I invited you here to hear the testimony of Wayne. I didn't necessarily say I want you to come and hear of the bloodshed that will be all over the pages of 2 Kings 10. That's because we love the promises, don't we? We love the promises. We love Isaiah 7:14 that there will be a virgin with child. We love Isaiah 9 that talks about the coming Savior, for unto you a Savior is born. He shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We love the branch in Jeremiah, the new covenant in Ezekiel, the fountain in Zechariah, the promise from Genesis 3 to the promise in Malachi 5. We love all those promises that tell us that there's a Christ who's coming. But it's just as much a part of our heritage and life in Christ, of which the promises are, to understand that God is also a God of judgment. What is it that we're saved from? We're saved from the terrible condition of sin that brings us eternal punishment unless God were to intervene. Tonight we're going to focus on this judgment, particularly on the house of Ahab and Israel. And it's not pretty. But it's a reminder that all of God's word, both regarding judgment and regarding salvation, will come to pass. We pick it up in the narrative regarding Jehu, who has been anointed by God as king of Israel. But in order to attain that office, he has been charged with striking the house of Ahab. He's already done that in chapter 9. He has killed off both King Joram of uh, Israel and King Ahaziah of Judah. We pick it up here after Jezebel, the queen mother, was also thrown out of a tower uh, in, uh, by, by some uh, folks, eunuchs, in the, uh, 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 the tower of Samaria, or of, of Jezreel, so that she too would fall. We pick it up with chapter 10. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the rulers of the city, to the elders, and to the guardians of the sons of Ahab, saying, Now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses, fortified cities also, and weapons, select the best and fittest of your master's sons, and set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid, and said, Behold, the two kings could not stand before him. How then can we stand? So he who was over the palace and he who was over the city, together with the elders and the guardians, sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants, and we will do all that you tell us. We will not make anyone king. Do whatever is good in your eyes. Then he wrote to them a second letter, saying, If you are on my side... And if you are ready to obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent, him, sent them to him at Jezreel. When the messenger came and told him they have brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, Lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until the morning. Then in the morning when he went out, he stood and said to all the people, You are innocent 
it was I who conspired against my master and killed him, but who struck down all these? Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab, for the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab and Jezreel, all his great men and his close friends and his priests, until he left him none remaining. Then he set out and went to Samaria. On the way, when he was at Beth Eked of the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and he said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the relatives of Ahaziah, and we came down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. He said, Take them alive, and they took them alive and slaughtered them at the pit of Beth Eked, 42 persons, and he spared none of them. And when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart true to my heart as mine is to yours? And Jehonadab answered, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and Jehu took him up with him into the chariot. And he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had wiped them out according to the word of the Lord that he spoke. To Elijah. This is the word of God. Let us ask God to bless our time together. Father, this is your word. We have heard this evening both notes of salvation and words of judgment. We pray that they would fall on ears to hear it and hearts to understand it, that we might apply them to our lives by your grace and by the power of your spirit. May the words spoken here, the thoughts thought here, and the actions done this week by our congregation be pleasing in your sight, or else pass away never to be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a freshman in high school, I got a small part in a school theater production that year. For some reason, the teacher thought it was wise for these high school students to play in the production of The Fall of the House of Usher. I don't know if you know anything about that horrible story. It's macabre. It's scary. It's horrible. And yet it's a reminder that in this terrible play that this family, the Usher family, which evidently was a wicked house, and had a wicked heritage, a wicked family. It describes in detail the gory end of that house. And they put it to a play, and they put it on to the people of our community. I had the privilege of being one who helped with the props as well as have a small part in the production. And it was my job to go to the local funeral home in order to obtain a cardboard box that caskets come in so we could use it in the production. I, after all, was somewhat connected to the funeral home because my father was a pastor at this small town, and so I had an in with the funeral home. And I thought, you know, what a terrible play to put on. Now, part of it was evidently this teacher loved this kind of production. She put on other shows like Dracula and Frankenstein and this one. And for some reason, she thought that was what should be done in a small town school. But what 
What about the fall of a house? The fall of the house of Usher was the end of the line. That was it. So it is here. This is the fall of the house of Ahab. Ahab's family was terrible. We looked last week and just were reminded of how Omri, Ahab's father, was described as a king who did more evil or more wickedness than all the kings before him. And then when Ahab became king, the son of Omri, it said exactly the same thing about him. He was worse than his father. And of course, by now, the next generation, first of all, Ahaziah, and now Joram, had also ruled. And God's word of judgment was given through Elijah, on again through Elisha to Jehu, saying, Strike the house of Ahab, for it shall become like the house of Basha and the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. In other words, the entire line will end. God's word of judgment will come to pass, for this is the reason of the good in the good news, isn't it? First of all, verses 1 through 11 this is a reminder that nothing of God's word shall fall. Now, we like to say that about the salvation things, right? We like to say that God's word shall not fall when we hear the word that God will always be with us, that God will save his people, that God will provide a Messiah, that God will do all these wonderful things. But we are reminded in this text that God also will carry out the judgment that he promises. Here's the situation. You know how it is by this point. The king and the queen mother have been killed. Now there's the job that Jehu has been given to strike not only the leaders of the house, the heads, so to speak, but also all the descendants. And so what does he do first? First of all, he sends a letter. This wasn't a pleasant letter. It was the first letter he sent to Samaria. Samaria, of course, being the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. He sends this letter, and it says like this. Now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, this is verse 2, and there are with you chariots and horses, fortified cities also and weapons, select the best and fittest of your master's house, of your master's sons, and set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. Now, first of all, note who this letter is to. It's to the chiefs. First of all, this reminds us these are the princes of the house, the, the rulers of the house. The, these are the palace officials in one sense. These are the, the cream of Ahab's household. Secondly, it's written to the elders. Now, these are the city leaders, the ones who would make decisions regarding Samaria. And the third group is the guardians or as the old word would be described in the 19th century by a commentary in that time period, the foster fathers. These are the ones who were raising the sons and the grandsons. Actually, this word sons is probably enveloping both sons and grandsons, particularly grandsons because of this word foster fathers. By this time, Ahab has been dead for 14 years, so he probably doesn't have any small children but he would have grandchildren. So here you have these three designations, chiefs, elders, and guardians, or foster fathers. And he's recognizing, first of all, their standing here. Here's their standing. First of all, he understands that their standing politically is this. They have the heirs to the throne, don't they? These sons of Ahab are 
society would consider the legitimate heirs of the throne or kingdom of this nation. Now, of course, we know in history they were usurpers. There were many assassinations and different lines that developed. They're not of the line of David, after all, uh, by this point. But yet they're the ones who are ruling over the nation. So they are having standing regarding heirs to the throne. But they also have standing regarding their military capability. This is the capital, after all. This is where they store their weapons. This is where they have their chariots and their horses. Uh, this is where they have the fortifications, and Jehu knows that if he's going to attack the house of Ahab and they are going to stand in opposition against him, these are the leaders who will make those decisions whether or not to go to war. So this letter is for, in one sense, a political purpose. It's for the purpose of exposing their loyalties. Are they so loyal to Ahab's house that they will fight against Jehu? Or will they not? So the purpose, exposing their loyalties, does two things. First of all, it inspires fear. In fact, that was the intent of this letter. And it says in verse 4, this was their reaction. They were exceedingly afraid and said, Behold, two kings could not stand before him. How then can we stand? In other words, it did inspire fear in them. After all, he, they know this is a challenge. Jehu's either saying, set up a king and fight, or submit to me. This is the other purpose of the letter, to inspire submission. So that they would, if they were afraid enough, if they refused to fight against Jehu, remember, by this time he's, he drives like a madman, he fights like a madman, likely, and he is someone who has military power and influence. So the purpose of this first letter is to expose their loyalties amongst the leaders of the people and see whether they will not, in fear and submission, come to Jehu. And of course they do. They basically say, we'll do whatever you think is right. So he sends a second letter. That's interesting that he does this by letter, doesn't he? He's not sending a messenger there. He's He's sending a, a courier, this is through the post office, I guess, of the day, to, to come on horseback, give a, give a scroll to the people at the gate, it passes on to the leaders. The second letter is a loyalty test. If you're on my side, if you are ready to obey me, verse 6 states, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. This is pretty awful. This loyalty test is... Basically saying, if you really are going to submit to me, you're willing to kill all these sons and grandsons of Ahab. And he's saying this not just to the people of the city who may not want there to be warfare. He's saying that to the people who are responsible, the people who are the heads or the top figures of the military, of the city, and those that were in charge of raising these boys. So this loyalty test is really saying to them, are you going to make a final break with Ahab? This is personal betrayal. This is betrayal of a family, in essence, that he's asking them to do. And so the second letter is sent, and they respond in this way. Verse 7 says, as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, put their heads in baskets, and sent them to him 
at Jezreel. This is horrible in our eyes. And the messenger came and told him they brought the heads of the king's sons, and he said, lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until the morning. I don't think I have to describe to you what this looks like. Then in the morning, when he went out, he stood and said to all the people, you are righteous, you are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him, but who struck down all these? What, what is this where he's at Jezreel and they're bringing all these heads and he leaves them at the gate? What, what in the world is going on here? Well, this is a display of power for the new king. You see, Jehu's been anointed as king. He's been described by Elisha's young prophet that was sent to anoint him king as the one who was to strike down the house of Ahab and all those things. But this is a display here of power. And when he says these words, he's not trying to absolve himself from the issue because he actually says here, I'm the one who betrayed your master. And it was his master too. He was the commander of the army, the general. But basically he's saying to them now, the phrase that we heard during COVID, we're all in this together, right? And in fact, so often we want that. If we do something wrong, we want to invite other people to take responsibility with us, don't we? Now, Jehu's not doing something wrong here. He's obeying God's word. Think about that for a minute. By killing all these descendants of Ahab, he is fulfilling the word of God. But he's also inviting them to an understanding that they have participated in this fulfillment. So in one sense, this is an invitation for them to realize you are now within my power, but it is also a realization that now they are all submitting to God's plan for their country. So Jehu here says this, Verse 10, know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab, for the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. Jehu is following or fulfilling the word of the Lord. Now you may ask, and you can ask the question, depends on how you ask it, whether it's a good question or not. How can God fulfill his purpose this way? It's awful. It's terrible. Is it those children and grandchildren's fault that their fathers and their grandfathers sinned in the way that they sinned? Do we know for sure that every last one of those 70 individuals participated in all the wicked things of the household? Scripture doesn't tell us whether that's important or not. It tells us that God's judgment will come to and this, of course, is the fall of the house of Ahab. So instituting power and the submission of the people of Israel to his now kingship, verse 11 takes place and it says, So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab and Jezreel, all his great men, his confidants, his priests, until he left not one remaining. In other words, the people were so submissive to him at this point, they stood by and did nothing while all of these people associated with the house of Ahab were slaughtered. So I live at the beach, at least close to it. And I understand a couple, couple years ago there was a new law that was passed in the city of Myrtle Beach 
it says something like this. Thou shalt not dig too deep a hole on the beach anymore. At least in the city of Myrtle Beach. So I began to ask my que myself this question because I, you, you have kids, you know they like to dig in the sand. And sometimes they like to dig really big holes so that they can get in them or that their parents can get in them or whatever it might be. That's one of the fun things to do at the beach. So I wondered to myself, Who's going to enforce this law of digging the big holes at the beach? Is it the lifeguard? Is it perhaps a parking attendant or a city employee? Or is it going to be the policeman that comes down the beach and finds a big hole and starts to find all the people sitting amongst that group at the beach? And then I wondered, who are they going to find? Are they going to find the little five-year-old who's dug the hole or begun to dug it? Or are they going to find the parent who assisted them in digging this hole? What is it that they're going to do? And then I also began to wonder, what are the objective standards by which they determine whether this is a big hole or not? Do they bring a measuring tape? Do they bring a ruler? Do they measure the, the width and depth of this hole and determine that this hole breaks this particular law? What are the standards, what are the means by which they will carry into effect the results of this particular law? Well, I say that in jest. I haven't seen anybody go up to people and say, hey, you're digging too big a hole, and now we're going to find you, and you need to leave the beach, or whatever they're going to do. I don't know what they're going to do. But I do think this. Words are important. Standards are important. The judgments for breaking those standards are important. What does God say about judgment? He says, if you refuse to obey me and follow my ways, there is a judgment that will come. And the world ignores it. And sometimes you and I have ignored it. We think we can just keep on doing what we're doing because the world seems to go on like a wound-up clock and keep ticking and ticking as long as our breath takes place and the world exists. We may not understand the details of the how or the why, but this passage should remind us that when it comes to judgment, God is deadly serious. God's judgment will come. But when man is involved in this judgment, it gets messy. Now, this is the problem here in this passage. So far, Jehu has been carrying out the word of God. He's been fulfilling it. So far, as much as we can tell, he hasn't necessarily done anything against God's word and sinned in this matter. Even though it's terrible, even though the, the death is horrible, and the extent of it is perhaps more than we could bear with our sensitive ears in the 21st century America. But here, in verses 12 through 14, something interesting happens. He sets out and he goes to Samaria. In other words, he's going to continue his bloodbath. On the way, he comes to this place. We don't even know for sure where it is. It's somewhere between Jezreel and Samaria. He comes to this place called Beth Eked of the shepherds. Evidently, it was a place where they perhaps sheared the sheep or something like that. It says in verse 13, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the relatives of Ahaziah, and we came down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. 
He says initially take them alive, but it was for the purpose of slaughtering them at another location at the pit or cistern of Beth Eked, a mass grave that he had with 42 people from Ahaziah that would be in it. Now what's going on here? First of all, this is to Jehu's ears a presumptive opportunity to rid the world of Ahab once and for all. After all, if you know the situation, you know Ahaziah now is related by blood to the house of Ahab. That was Jehoshaphat's great sin. Jehoshaphat, a great king, a righteous king of Judah, but the one fault for which he's faulted in Scripture is by associating and allying himself with the house of Ahab to the extent that he let one of his sons enter a marriage alliance with Ahab so that now they are descendants of Ahab and related to Jezebel, and of course, the one who will be the queen after this will come across her in a couple chapters here is Athaliah. You know anything about her? So these are relatives of Ahaziah. And they're visitors of the king and queen mother. Now who's the queen mother here? Jezebel. So Jehu hears this. He says, this is a great opportunity. They're related to Ahab too. And after all, they're already infecting the southern kingdom as well with this terrible wickedness of the line of Ahab. Now I have the chance to not only strike at the house of Ahab in Israel, but get rid of the influence of Ahab in Judah. But the problem is this. These are also presumptions on the directive of the Lord. What was Jehu's job? Jehu was to strike the house of Ahab, and he was to be anointed king of Israel. Elisha's young prophet that he sent to prophesy these things in the name of Elisha and Elijah and in the name of the Lord had nothing to do with Judah. Remember, these are descendants not just of Ahab. These are descendants of David, God's line. And these in that sense, are questionable targets. Now, on the one hand, I can understand why he would say, oh, these also are associated with Ahab, and I can see the zeal to get rid of them as well. He's already killed King Ahaziah. On the other hand, when you turn to Hosea chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, you read this prophecy. If I can get there. It says this, the Lord said to him, that is to Hosea, call his name, his child, call him Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. What does it mean here? Well, this is the, this is the event. It's because he took upon himself not only God's word to attack and get rid of the house of Ahab, but also he took it upon himself to take these descendants of the line of David, and because of their association with Ahab, he killed them too. You see, man's judgment is messy. When I was in college, I was also... After taking some classes and being involved in theater, I was a theater minor. And in my theater minor, one of the acting classes, I specifically remember the teacher. It was a husband and wife duo at this small college. I loved them both, wonderful people, great Christian folks. 
And I remember in the class particularly the female professor saying, acting is reacting, right? Okay, so you get into a play and you have all the rehearsals. The director tells you what they want you to do and from scene to scene. It comes to the night of the, of the play. And remember, the director is the one who's taught us all acting is reacting. But remember, she's the director, so she's told you where she wants you to be, what she wants you to do, how she wants you to react, and of course, all the scenes with all the memorization, you memorize not just the lines, but you memorize all the movements and all the things that are supposed to be, and of course, you do understand that there are times when something unusual might happen, and of course, you might have to react. But imagine if the actor, hearing those words in his head, acting is reacting, takes it upon himself to be free to improvise and react in a different way on the night of the performance than they reacted in any of the rehearsals. They were not directed to act in that way, but they think to themselves, after all, I've been taught acting is reacting, and I thought it would be good to react in a different way in this particular night. How would the director take that? This is what we as people do, isn't it? God uses flawed instruments to accomplish his purposes. In this case, God was using someone who had dictatorial tendencies. We're going to see in, a couple, in the next couple chapters. He's going to use someone that continues sins that were done before he became king. He's going to use this imperfect instrument to carry out his purpose. And remember the words of the Lord. Do not add or subtract to my word. Now, zeal is one thing. Jehu obviously has zeal, doesn't he? He has so much zeal that not only does he kill off the house of Ahab, but he says, let's kill off the house associated with Ahab and Judah as well. You see, we can take things too far. God's judgment will come. But when he uses human agents, which he often does, the collateral damage also comes with it because man's judgment is messy. And yet it's still a reminder. God's word will come to pass. At verse 15, we're invited back to Jehu's journey off into Samaria. And he recruits this guy by the name of Jehonadab, described elsewhere in scripture by the name Jonadab, the son of Rechab, who is coming to meet him. Now, first of all, you must understand this is a recruiting effort in one sense. Now, it could be that Jonadab was seeking him out. We don't know how they met each other. But here he's come, and he's met him, and he greets him, and he invites him up into the carriage, and he says... Uh, basically, is, my, is your heart true to my heart? Is mine as yours? Jehonadab answers, it is. Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and he said to him, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Now, what is going on here? Who is Jehonadab? What in the world is all this? If you know your scripture, perhaps you've come across the Rechabites before. This is a conservative element in Israelite politics. The identity of Jonadab, son of Rechab, is revealed in Jeremiah 35. Jeremiah is pronouncing judgment on Judah, and he's describing 
to them their having broken the ways of God. And he says, I want you to look at the Rechabites. Their father, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, told them that they should not drink wine, they should not plant vineyards, they should not sow seed, they should not build houses, but they should dwell in tents. And he said to them, after all these years, remember Jeremiah is writing many years after the events that this take place. Jeremiah is told to set wine before the Rechabites. And the Rechabites said, oh no, we can't do that because our father many years ago told us to live in this fashion. And we've not drunk, neither our wives or our sons or daughters, none of us have drunk wine, planted vineyards, built houses, sowed seeds, but we have lived in tents. In other words, this is the conservative element that for some reason Jonadab thought it was a wise thing to have old-time Yahwism. That is, they, they would go around and be nomads in an idealistic sense, morally looking good in the community. And by the time Jeremiah is writing these words of his prophecy, the situation has become dire in the regions around Jerusalem, and they have come to dwell in Jerusalem as sojourners. And Jeremiah is told, look at the Rechabites, look at how conservative they are, look at how they have kept their father's law all these years. And he actually, God's word came to him, and he said, these ones are not going to be faced with the judgment from Babylon that all of you will be. So this is the conservative element in Israel. And Jehu invites him into the chariot, and he says, are our hearts intertwined? In other words, are we on the same page? So here's Jehu. He's messy. He's inviting the people in to his program. And politically, he's getting support from the Rechabites. And Jehu says, I have zeal. Zeal for the Lord. Notice this isn't, hey, I have zeal for bloodshed. Or I have zeal to take the kingdom. He says here, I have zeal for the Lord. That's what would have been attractive to these Rechabites. Meanwhile, the blood is dripping from his sword. He comes to Samaria. He strikes down all who remain to Ahab in Samaria to wipe them out according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. So here's the zeal. Blood dripping from his sword. It's the zeal of Phineas. Perhaps you know that story. It's the fulfillment of the word of the Lord. Now again, referring back to my youth, I played football in junior high. I didn't play in high school. But in junior high, one of the things that we loved to do is when the coach had us do fumble recovery. Now, this was what would take place when it had rained and it was muddy. And so we had these practice uniforms, and we would, he would take us and line us up two lines across the field, and he would throw that football in the middle of the lines and say, okay, now go. And, of course, everybody was supposed to try and get this football in this mud. Now, this was terribly messy. In fact, it was so messy that at one point in my eighth grade year, the parents complained so much about having to clean these muddy clothes that the, the coach said, okay, we'll just stop doing it, much to the terrible, awful 
uh, condition of the athletes who love fumble recovery. But it was messy. It was terribly messy. In fact, we get mud everywhere. We get it on our faces. We get it on our clothes. We get it through all our pads. It would be, you know, in our shoes, all, all this place. But there was a purpose behind this messiness. The purpose was two things. First of all, he wanted us to make sure we knew football was fun. But the other thing was to inspire within us an aggressive nature to go after that ball. Now, God's judgment is messy. I've already seen that. Judgment is not pretty. In fact, I don't have to remind you what war looks like. It's on the news the last few weeks, particularly in the gory details, if you want to look at them, from the war in the Middle East. Now, it's interesting to me. We don't have the same pictures and the same views of the war in Ukraine and Russia so much as the things and the atrocities that they've committed in the Middle East. doesn't mean they're not happening. It just means they're, they're not accessible to us for whatever reason. But the point is this. These ugly things of judgment and people dying and terrible things happening, the purpose is, is this, to expose to us all that God is a holy God. He will not tolerate evil. And it's not just that he won't tolerate evil on the level of Ahab and his house. It's that they are representative of the evil that we all commit. As Wayne said in his testimony, he said, the wages of sin is death, for all have sinned and fallen short. Our wickedness deserves God's judgment. And God's judgment will come to pass. Our only hope is that God would intervene somehow on our behalf. And so the comfort we have in the fulfillment of God's word is the comfort, first of all, that God will bring judgment. But then it's also the comfort that he has brought the sacrifice to take our place, Jesus Christ. There's a no-doubt reason for the joy of salvation. When we read a text like this, we have to place ourselves in the position not of Jehu the conqueror, but in the sons and grandsons of Ahab involved in the wickedness of the kingdom. We see what we deserve. And we have awe that God would use us, the church of Jesus Christ. It's flawed. It's messy. Even the leaders are going to do things that they shouldn't do. They're going to be presumptive about the things that they're supposed to do. Sometimes they're going to say things or do things or not do things or not say things. And it's going to be a big, huge mess. And there are going to be people in the world that say we had people from the church that just turned us off. But God still uses the primary instrument of the church to carry out his plan, both of judgment and salvation. It's proclamatory. It's to tell the world that judgment is coming, but also to tell the world that if you believe and repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the judgment has already taken place on Christ on the cross. The fall of the house of Ahab is not just about God's judgment. It's about God's word that will be fulfilled, both his word of judgment and his word of salvation. 
Lord, in all the messiness and the bloodshed and the terrible, gory details of this passage, you remind us both through the mouth of a flawed, zealous servant and through the one who wrote these chronicles of Second Kings that your word is fulfilled. We thank you. We long for the day when we will not see the items of judgment anymore, but will only see the salvation we have in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name.